Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hello, and welcome back to Confessions of a Reformer. Uh, this is another episode where it's just going to be me talking to you. We're going on a walk. I apologize if I get out of breath. I hope that doesn't happen. I can just get really excited and walk really fast and talk really fast, and then I can't breathe. I'm going to see if I can control myself today. Um, I, forgive me if there's any other background noises that shouldn't be happening. I'm in nature, so there are probably some birds chiming in trying to get in on this podcast too. Anyway, thanks for being here. Um, I, I know that if you've been listening to me for a minute, you've heard that I started a group called Ashes, which is a deconstruction space. Um, this group came as a necessity for just the organic process my team was going on of, you know, from me coming out, it was a necessary next step for us in that process. So I started the group Ashes, and we celebrated our one-year anniversary last week. So that's really cool, like really fun to see like the longevity and just how far we've come. It was actually kind of crazy. We took some time last week during the group to reflect on what all has changed and like how our beliefs are so different. Um, this group was dedicated to creating a space for Christians mostly, um, who were coming from you know the various backgrounds they did to face and process, challenge, ask questions about what they'd always been told their whole life, what they'd been believing this whole time. Uh, and so the space was designed to be a non-judgmental um, environment where they can ask whatever questions they needed to at, that were just coming up in their process without being judged, criticized, you know, ousted, rejected, blacklisted. <laughs> um, it's, I'm laughing because, like, why should I even have to specify that, right? But... Within Christian culture, you know, you ask the wrong questions sincerely, you get, like, your identity changes in that group, um, which is so sad and, like, really telling. But anyway, so this group was designed to do not that, to be a place where people honestly could explore, be vulnerable, be genuine, and not lose face or suffer their status or inclusion in the group based on their thought process. And the goal was also not to end up anywhere in particular. We didn't need to agree, and that was okay. Which was an experiment, you know? Like, being in a Christian environment my, most of my life, um, agreement was a big deal. You know, groupthink kind of required that you landed in your conclusions in the same ending points as the group, and if you didn't, you didn't belong. And the solution to that wasn't that we wrestled and asked questions and respected each other's process. The solution was that you had to leave. And there were gatekeepers who ensured and enforced this kind of protection of the system, right? So anyway, Ashes was designed to be what the church couldn't be, hadn't been for all of us. And it has been such a redemptive, beautiful, transformative, costly <laughs> experiment um, that I'm so glad. I mean, I, every Almost every week, somebody, if not several of us, are like, I'm so thankful for this space. This has been such a life-changing like, group. Because, you know, when you go into deconstruction, um, it's not just like analyzing data. You're not just like in a, an echo chamber, like in a sterile environment, just like pulling details apart. This stuff impacts your life. 
if you've been raised or like if you spend any significant time in a religious environment, um, and obviously my context is Christian, and you start pulling apart some of where these beliefs and ideas came from, that actually they're not generated by the Bible, or they're not exegetical, like we actually took the Bible to justify or support a certain value that didn't originate in Scripture, like you start having some pretty intense fallout from that, right? And like, if this is not true, or if this is true in this way, then what else have we missed? What else have I just blindly accepted that wasn't accurate, that isn't substantiated, right? So that, anyway, so these thoughts, these tenets are connected to each other. If one of them falls, several of them are going to have to go too, if you're honest, and, and not just lazy, right? Or like avoidant, but you actually honestly like allow your curiosity and, you know, the need for um, clarity and for these things to make sense together, like you have to keep going and asking more questions and the thread just keeps pulling and the sweater keeps unraveling. But more than that, this isn't just an intellectual or academic process. It also hits you, obviously, on a deeply emotional level. It hits you in your relationships, in your connection to the existing community you're likely part of. It hits you in your worldview and your spirituality. It even touches your relationship with God, like how you perceive this person, who and what are they in the world and How does this relationship actually play out and what does that look like? And it affects prayer and ministry and life calling. Like it touches all of these significant tenets of what we think it means to be human and to live a significant life, right? And so this is not for the faint of heart, obviously, but um, it hits everything in your life. It It touches all aspects, which is beautiful and important and something to be responsible with and aware. So anyway, all that to say, like the reason Ashes was so important for us was because it was a space for us to do this with other people, to go on a journey together. We are relational beings. We are emotional um, without having conversations, without talking about what we're going through. We go insane, right? If you don't talk to people long enough, you can start ending up in very weird places internally, both mentally and emotionally. You start bottoming out. it It doesn't go well for us to be living in an isolated state for very long. Obviously, some alone time here and there is important and necessary. But um, when you start touching and facing big things in your life and you start questioning them or losing them by yourself, that is a scary prospect, right? And I know a lot of people who've done that and it is, it wasn't pretty, right? I think the common experience of people who go through deconstruction, especially alone, is one of, I mean, trauma, right? It's like, it was devastating. It was really depressing. It was really scary. It was overwhelming. And some of them had to like stop because of how intense it was. That still happened to people in this group, but thankfully they didn't stay there. It wasn't long lasting. They got to like process and share (laughs) their bottoming out whilst, you know, in the group. And so it was a journey, right? And lots of tears and lots of aha moments, lots of breaths of fresh air, lots of relief. It was a beautiful, fascinating journey. So anyway, all that to say, um, I wanted to share a couple of like, I don't know, big pieces of that process. Um, Just as far as like, if there's a record... (laughs) here um, on these things. I just wanted to kind of update us on some of the things that like changed massively for me, right? And I guess also people in the group. Um, Obviously, I can't cover all this in one or a few episodes, and I have no intention of trying to do that. Um, There's so much detail, so much context, so many layers um, and, you know, things to include for this to be a thorough and honest and whatever, and people have done that work, so I could point you to tons of books. But I just want to give you a bit of an overview on some major themes that were like massively impacted for me personally in this deconstruction process, not just with ashes, but just in general. Um, so as we reflected, as I reflect on the last year, but it's probably been a couple of years now for me, 
Um, there are several things that have changed in a big way that I wanted to share here um, that like massively influence what kind of Christianity I even think I'm a part of and that I can participate in. Um, I'm going to hit the, a, a big one right off the bat. <laughs> and listen, if you're here, like I have, I think it's abundantly clear that I'm not trying to say what I think you want me to hear. What? I'm not trying to say what I think you want to hear. I'm saying what I have to say, and you know, you don't like it, you don't agree, you're offended, you think I'm crazy, you think I'm a heretic, that's fine. Uh, you, you don't have to be here, you know? But I'm not here to, to tell people what they want to hear. Like, I'm over that, I can't do it anymore, it's exhausting, it's a waste of energy. Um, it's also really harmful, you know, to like start having an agenda and being complicit with systems and things that cause you to reap benefits at the expense of other people. It's not okay. So I'm going to be as honest and forthcoming as I know to be, whilst also hopefully being respectful about this whole conversation. So, um, but I think a lot of people who follow me, like that's kind of part of the vibe is like, we don't want the cookie cutter copy and paste repeat of what we can get everywhere else. We're looking for something different because we know that what we've been getting isn't it. <laughs> Something's deeply wrong and has been missing for a long time or lots of things actually. So one of the big things that hit me in the deconstruction process that was like kind of jarring to consider because it touched the life and ministry of Jesus was the notion of salvation. Um, there are so many directions this can go in and I'm not going to be able to cover most of them. But one important piece I wanted to share in this episode was when Jesus talks about salvation, um, we've been told in evangelical Christianity, right, in fundamentalism, that the whole message and purpose of Jesus' life and ministry was to basically help us escape earth. <laughs> People don't say it that way, but that's kind of a notion, right? Like, we're going to get out of here. Um, this isn't our home, right? We're not, we don't belong here. We're something else. Um, see us, suckers, right? We're peacing out. Um, which is like fundamentally a flawed way to participate in the world. Like it's a really deeply problematic perspective in and of itself. And I would like to propose it's actually not biblical. <laughs> That's not, uh, and it depends on who you ask, right? There are some really intelligent, learned scholars who would propose other things about what Jesus meant when he said these things. Um, but anyway, I don't believe Jesus was offering us salvation from the earth. I don't believe Jesus was offering us salvation from a big, bad cosmic devil. I don't think that he was trying to help us, you know, defeat or overcome this, like, Satan character being, you know, who's after us. I don't believe that that's true. Um, I also don't believe that salvation that Jesus preached had anything to do with cleansing us of this rotting, you know, powerful nature of sin within us. So I'm hitting like pretty big doctrine right here, right? And I'm not going to do the due, the due diligence or the justice to like justify or substantiate what I'm claiming here. I'm just letting you know some of the updates on this process. I don't believe that's what Jesus preached. When we look at salvation and what Jesus was offering to people and we understand context and you start taking in the nuance, um, history, the, like, the, the people that the writers were speaking to, the world they were in, the worldview they possessed, right? There are all these different elements that come into play that inform what, gets, what got written down and how it was meant to be understood and read and applied. Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to go into understanding these, these texts and putting them in their proper context. And I would propose that that work is not impossible. It's not as far away as the average person might think. Um, I think being in the church environment, you're kind of taught 
the knowledge, the answers, the clarity for these things is hidden behind, you know, millions of years of education and certifications and MDivs and all this. And you're never going to be qualified to understand this stuff. <laughs> no one says that, right? Of course. But that is kind of an attitude and expectation within the walls of the church. This knowledge and information, the ability, the authority to make these kinds of claims, to ask these kinds of questions, to assert these kinds of insights from the text is reserved for an elite few, and most of you are not even qualified to participate. That is a very harmful, concerning, just deeply problematic um, function of the culture. The reality is, especially today, this information is so much more accessible than it ever has been, like in the history of mankind. And the books that have been written, the, the diligence, the awareness, the sincerity, like, it's, there's so many great pieces of work you could get your hands on that would genuinely help inform like why the theology we were handed is so harmful and why there are actually many other ways to look at this, um, and some of which are actually more accurate, more hopeful, more productive, more God-natured, right? Anyway, so all that to say, when Jesus talks about salvation, um, when you actually remove the lens we were told to have in, in interpreting the life of Jesus and his message, um, Jesus is talking about liberation from an empire. Jesus is repeatedly confronting the nature of Rome and the violence therein, right? The dominating force that takes over that, and you know, obviously also addressing within the culture itself, like the divisive, exclusive, elitist, um, dismissal of the marginalized, of people who are oppressed, of the quote-unquote least of these, this whole salvation message is actually more talking to, hey, are you liberated from the ecosystem of violence within your own being, with your own, within your own heart, if you will, right? Like within your own spirit, have you like been able to walk away from the greed and the imperialistic reach to secure and control your own power within the ecosystem you're participating in, could you actually open up to something greater? Could you overcome the fear that drives you to grab a sword or a gun or what have you, right? And instead learn to receive the other, the stranger, the foreigner. Could you learn to absorb the offense of your neighbor to overcome harm, violence, hatred, with love, right? Like this is the message of Jesus. And the salvation here is, can you be liberated from that way of living, of being, of valuing, right? Valuing yourself and others and <laughs> resources around you and the way you manage all that. Could you be saved from what violence and oppression and empire have done to the world? Could you be liberated from that, right? Um, I have several theologically um, inclined, educated friends who are seeing in the text, like, Jesus isn't talking about some cosmic, interdimensional other place, whether it be heaven or hell, when he's confronting and, like, leading people into what we were calling salvation. He was talking about here and now. How are you showing up? Are you showing up? And in what way? What is the impact your life and choices are having on those around you, especially those who have been ravaged by what's wrong with the world, right? Like, this is the message that Jesus was preaching 
um, that unfortunately, specifically, evangelicalism has completely bypassed and gone a whole other direction. And we can get into the history of what Constantine did, right? The brilliance of, you know, this rebellious resistance that Jesus was instituting that was actually becoming quite powerful, that it was a threat, and they executed him for it, right? This notion that, hey, we don't owe Caesar any of this. We don't have to use this currency. We don't have to subscribe to these systems and bow to these infrastructures. We can actually build something different, totally separate from what they're offering us, right? Like that was a threat. And so guess what? 300 years after Jesus, Constantine comes in and instead of continuing to fight and stamp out these resistance movements, because this Christianity thing just kept growing, right? The more they killed the Christians, the bigger it was getting. So this brilliant move, like let's let's take on this church. Let's give the church, the Christian church, benefits from the empire. Let's give them buildings and let's give them tax exemptions. Let's give them opportunity. Let's protect them in certain ways, right? And then, you know, with this partnership, when we get in bed together, guess what? We can start, like, dictating what kind of impact this movement is having on the people. And, you know, at that point, moving forward, Christianity changed. It went from an organic resistance movement to empire to becoming this oppressive evangelical let's impose our ideology and demand that you agree with us agenda right um so sad and unfortunately some of those tenets and themes (laughs) have not changed they've only gotten worse right in certain ways and what have you anyway so um this leads me to another thing that has drastically had to change for me this like the eye-opening part of this for me was when i was coming out um but then getting to get better language for what this was exactly that I was trying to name. Um, this, is gonna, this is gonna sound extreme, but I don't, I don't think I'm being dramatic here. There is this thing that, I, that some people call Christian supremacy that is an actual problem within fundamentalist evangelicalism. Um, this notion that I'm better than you. We are better than everyone else. That sounds dramatic and absurd, but it's literally how evangelicals think. It's how I used to think. And the crazy thing is I would never have admitted to that. I would never have said that out loud. And if you would have accused me of it, I would have defended myself. So I know anybody who still believes it right now is defending themselves and I'm wrong and I'm crazy and all the reasons why. So whatever, we get to sidestep that. I don't need to convince anybody of this. But the reality is I had to start divesting from this whole belief system that I was God's chosen. I'm the elect. I'm called, I'm anointed, like all those things were true of me, right? I got to be the most special and most important, part of the most special and important group on the planet, Um, which is so nice. Like who's going to say no to that, right? When you don't know any better. But when you start realizing that what this belief produces in the world is actually harm against people who aren't within that group, you scrutinize and discriminate against people who don't live or believe the way you do, (laughs) This is not the message of Jesus. This is not, you know, charity or grace or compassion or mercy or love. This is supremacy. (laughs) This is I'm better than you and my betterness actually demands a response from you. And if you refuse to adhere to this, you deserve, you know, X, Y, and Z, all these horrible consequences for you not agreeing with me, for you not being like me. Uh, This is gross and unfortunately very evangelical. Um, I'm out. Thankfully, so done with that. And, you know, within ashes, we had to spend a lot of energy and time, like, reflecting upon the ways that that supremacist nature 
that culture was playing out in our own lives, right? In our marriages, in the way we judged people who weren't like us, didn't believe the way we did, um, you know, the way, the kind of movies we were allowing ourselves to see, the kinds of people we were allowed to associate with, the kinds of places we could go, like, it was crazy, right? Just the choices we had to condemn, the people we had to, like, push away because of the ways that they deviated from the path we knew they were, quote-unquote, supposed to take. Um, Problem, right? And there are lots of, like, sources within these ancient texts that Christianity pulls from to justify this supremacist priority. It's just not the nature of Christ, right? It's not what Jesus preached. Um, literally, it's the opposite. Another one, I'm not going to get into this too big because it's these are, these are all huge, right? So the repeated disclaimer is I can't do justice for any of this. It's more just like kind of commentary on these major shifts. Um, patriarchy is obviously such a big deal. In the world, in the Bible, like every book in the canonized Bible that we have was written by a man. Um, if you don't think that influences what they thought was important and what details to highlight and what direction these, these you know, writings should go, um, you're not paying attention. Them being male, like, is a huge factor in, like, what they were even able to communicate, what they were even aware of. Um, but it's not just their own, like, individual perspectives. It's also, like, the nature of the world they were in and the, what they were speaking to, that informed what they were even able to conceive of when they were writing, right? So there's this whole notion of, like, you know, the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. Therefore, every author who wrote whatever they wrote did it under the intense influence of the Holy Spirit. These are God's words. God said all of this. Um, guess who mostly is perpetuating that idea? Men, right? Like there's a very patriarchal, sexist value in the Bible and protecting these literal interpretations of the Bible. And guess who pays for it? People who aren't men, <laughs> People who aren't, at this point, you know, obviously in our culture right now, aren't cisgender, heterosexual, white men. Um, If you're not that, then you're likely being harmed by the way people read the Bible. So we look at the way Eve is treated, and then the way most women in the Bible are treated until Jesus shows up. But even then, in the Gospels, the way the stories are told and the way the women are treated, you can see this really intense, heavy-handed patriarchy patriarchal um, leaning, right? Or emphasis. And so then from there comes this whole like purity culture offshoot, right? Like what does it mean to be pure? And how do we like protect our sexual purity? And like what even is sexual purity? Like we have these values and ideas and intense standards that are pretty strict in evangelicalism today. But where they came from and why they were in place, a lot of that does not get looked at, and instead it only just gets obeyed, it gets adhered to, which is problematic. Um, So when you think about this whole notion of virginity, uh, most of that was in place to protect, it was like property laws, right? It was to protect men's property, whether you were the father of a daughter or the husband of a wife, we are protecting the quality of your goods, right? You owned these women. They weren't equal status. They weren't considered human. They were almost human, which is crazy to think about, but that was the nation, the, the notion back then. And I get it. Like, there were reasons for this, but, like, what was happening in these purity culture, like, origin laws was we're protecting the integrity of the way society was structured back then, right? And then we just continued to perpetuate that thing. And guess what? The men who protected and upheld these values and priorities, 
they didn't have reason or incentive to change them, right? Because they continue to enjoy the privilege that comes from being a man in a man's world. Um, anyway, so now we've got purity culture with all these specific like standards and standards and expectations, and mostly women are the ones who are harmed by this continued perpetuating, exacting <laughs> priority over their bodies and their autonomy, and it's awful. And we can get it, we can go nuts on that. Um, in fact, let me just like let you know. If you're not subscribed to Numa Plus, I would highly encourage you to jump in on that. Um, it opens the first three days of, the, of each month. But we've got some purity culture interviews that we've done, just kind of exploring from different kinds of people, married, straight, gay, single, divorced, all, you know, um, their experiences of purity culture growing up in Christianity. And um, I'll be releasing interviews from my team on that very subject over the next few months with the Numa Plus. So if you're not subscribed, be sure to grab that when the first of the month happens. You're going to want to check out those interviews. It's like vulnerable. It's awkward. The things that we talk about, like it makes us cringe because, you know, purity culture just like made all those things taboo, but we got to talk about them, right? It's so awkward that we pretend like we're not sexual beings. We don't have sexual desires. We're not having these sexual experiences. We can't talk about it, <laughs> but there are all these requirements and like restrictions on how you're allowed to experience any of that, but you can't talk about it. Anyway, join us for that. All right, moving right along. Um, there's also this very big ethical problem about a genocidal God, right, in the Old Testament that commanded Israel to wipe out a whole other race of people. Uh, what do you do with that, right? If this God is loving <coughs> and redemptive and merciful and compassionate, why is this he God, <laughs> this male God, commanding this nation to kill these other nations, right, to wipe out the women and children and just, you know, brutal violence, like what? And again, when it comes to the context of this, we recognize that these ancient cultures had these views of their gods and Israel wasn't different from their other nations in that way. Their God was a warrior God, right? A tribal God like the other gods were. And their God was like given honor and glory by wiping out his enemies, by conquering the other nations. Like Israel had this same kind of lens with their God that the other nations had with theirs. Um, we just happen to mostly be informed of Israel's because that's the text that we inherited, right? But anyway, when you look at how they perceived their gods related to them, expected them, like they had these understandings and expectations of like how they were going to perform or behave or what they wanted. So when these authors wrote these books, they put words in God's mouth of what they believed God was saying to them. And I, I believe they meant what they were writing. They believed it was divinely inspired. This is what their God wanted from them, right? I don't believe it's literally what God wanted or was saying. I think it's what they believed God was saying. And so that created, obviously, this whole... And there are lots of reasons within the text to be able to hold that perspective accountable and recognize, like, hey, this is not empirical truth. There's a lens, there's a perspective, there's a priority, there's an agenda going on here. These guys aren't malicious, they're not trying to be harmful, they're doing the best they can with what they have. This is what they believed, right? Um, if you're a biblical literalist, if you think that these words in the Bible are supposed to be taken literally, you can't accept what I just said. But when you realize that this whole, like, dogma, that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God, is actually not true, it doesn't mean the Bible is irrelevant, doesn't matter, we can't get incredible value from it, that God has nothing to do with it. It means that there's a lot of context that goes into how these words got written down, how these books got compiled into this library that we call the Bible, 
how the other books didn't make it, who made these decisions. Like, there's lots that go into that. And you have to admit, if you're being intellectually honest and exercising integrity in this process, the thing that makes you accept that these 66 books compiled into what we call the Bible today isn't a divine act of God. It's not faith that compels you to believe that. It is superstition. It is coercion. It is insistence. A group of people, a group of men decided this is how this is going to go. Guess what? The person who called the group together to create the creed, the Nicene Creed, right? One universal Catholic church. You're a Christian if you believe these things and you're not if you don't. Like, who gets to decide that? Not the people who decided it. Anyway, so I'm going to let it go here, but um, this Bible, this source of these tenets of, you know, Christian beliefs and dogmas is protected by superstition and cult-like attitudes, not truth, not evidence, not data that supports the conclusion. Um, Okay, I'm going to move on from that. (laughs) Let's look at Adam and Eve for a second. When we recognize that the Bible has mythology as one of the genres that is contributing to this work, um, you start recognizing like, what? This isn't history. They're not reporting. The author of Genesis... Anyway, I don't want to get lost in the details here, but, you know, up until like two years ago, I lived my life believing that Adam and Eve were the first human beings, like literal, actual people, and that they were in a literal garden where a literal snake came and talked to this woman and tricked her into eating a literal forbidden fruit of a mystical tree about the knowledge of good and evil. All this was literal to me, right? And because they did what they did, God put angels with fiery swords outside this garden and sent them away. I'm like, oh my God, I believed all this was literal. Like, this all happened. (laughs) I believed that God paraded all the different species of animals, the birds and the fish, by Adam, and he named them, right? I believe that God made him go to sleep, and he took a bone out of his side and created a whole other woman out of this. Like, I believe all this, literally. (laughs) Um, But that's because of the way I was taught about the Bible. I didn't understand genre. I didn't understand there were different types of writing that was going into creating this library of books, and that these, the people who wrote this, right, I didn't appreciate that they're coming from an ancient worldview. They had a very old way of looking at things that was, like, uninformed the way we know things happen, the way things work now, right? We know so much more than these guys did. It's not to discredit or devalue what they wrote, it's to appreciate and put into context what they wrote, why they wrote it the way that they did. And we realize that ancient cultures all had their mythologies. They all had their origin stories that were myths. Myth doesn't mean false or, you know, like um, fiction necessarily. It means like it's explaining why things are the way they are. Not using science, but using like stories, right? That's not wrong or bad. It's the way things were done. And in some ways, like, that still kind of happens, right? And we understand with the right tension and context, myths are helpful. They're beautiful. They're interesting. Um, They help carry messages or meanings or principles, right? But to treat a myth like a historical fact is actually very harmful and leads us to inaccurate conclusions. Um, It creates a ton of ignorance, right? And when you have a whole group of people who are being put into a mental penitentiary... (laughs) (laughs) to stay adherent to the code of the group and they don't get to know different and they have to continue to insist regardless of advances 
in science and culture and society and anthropology, whatever. Like we have to continue to maintain that this is how things went because the Bible says so, because God says, I believe God's word. Like that's ignorant. That's selfish. It's really stupid. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It honestly is a stupid stance. It makes no sense. It requires zero education or critical thinking. You just simply listen to what your Sunday school teacher told you and you accept it as fact because they said it, because they found in this book sentences to justify why that's true. Like, that's not how this works. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> and it's hard not to get all worked up about this stuff because of how much it has impacted my life, right? And how much it's taken from me and how much error it's like caused me to have to continue to like do jumping jacks around. <laughs> like, it's so unproductive. But more importantly, it's also harmful when you believe this stuff and think that you need to convince other people to believe the way you do. Like, that's not the message of Jesus. <laughs> like, just like, let's, let's close with this. The message of Jesus was, hey, love your neighbor. Love your brother. Love your enemy. Love people. Love, right? That's, and that sounds like so oversimplified. And it can get so cliche we don't even hear it anymore. It's like, that can't be it. Jesus meant more than that. Jesus was more, was more intelligent than that. It's like, well, Jesus was intelligent. Sure, but the message was simple. Love people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you got treated the way Christians treat people who they see as different from them, you wouldn't like Christians either, right? Christians are jerks in our culture based on how evangelicalism demands that they respond to people who don't believe the way they do. We know this was not Jesus' message. The message. This was not how Jesus treated people who didn't believe the way he did, who weren't from the same tribe, the same culture, the same ideology as him. Jesus was kind and compassionate, considerate. Jesus crossed cultural and social lines, right? Jesus embraced people who were downtrodden, who were overlooked, who were excluded, who were illegal. Jesus embraced these people, and Jesus commanded that we follow the example of the criminal in that culture, this Samaritan, this person who doesn't, you know, line up with the way that you're supposed to be, Jesus used that person as the example. Follow him. What? Do as he did. Go and do likewise. This person who disregarded the lines that separated him from the guy who was beaten up and bleeding in the, in the gutter or on the side of the road, right? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is the message of, Je message of Jesus, not... Go get everyone to think the way you think. Believe the way you believe. I know we've got passages in the gospel where he's like, go preach the gospel, right? Make disciples. Um, and there's conjecture over, did Jesus say that? Where did that come from? Why did they get written in? And I know that that's, again, like, you need a lot of information to be able to, like, assess why are we questioning that. But I don't believe Jesus said that. Um, <laughs> when you start analyzing the gospels, y'all, when you look at the synoptic gospels, when you look at John, you look at where this stuff came from and the time frame and, you know, how these things were developed over time. And my gosh, it starts to change. And the word gospel starts to have a different meaning at this point. And you're like, oh my God, this isn't fact. This isn't history. This isn't divinely inspired direction for us. There's something else going on here. And it's cool to appreciate. It's cool to understand. It's sobering. It's important. But it changes who and what you think Jesus was doing, what he was about, when you start recognizing who was talking about him and what they were saying about him. It's fascinating. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about this here. But um, listen, if you are, are one of those Christians who's like, 
oh God, I don't know. Like, I don't think what's going on in the church is awesome. I don't think this is it. I think we're missing some things. I think we have some beliefs and values that are not good and they're problematic, but I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where, the, where to go with this. I'm like, hey, I think maybe Ashes might be for you. Um, so if that's you, feel free to um, click on the link below this episode to apply to be part of the group. Um, depending on how that plays out, I might just start a new group to go through a whole journey again together. We might incorporate you into what we're doing currently. I don't know. It depends. Um, but if that's a space that you need for yourself and you're ready to like start asking questions, to start considering some new things, to start deep diving, if you will, maybe you know dipping your toe in and then deciding to dive later, like th- that this space is for you. It's, the goal is not to convince you of what to believe. The goal is to hold accountable what you do believe and to like assess the fruit that it's producing in your life and in the lives of people in the world, right? What do people who believe these kinds of things, how do they participate in the world? Is that lining up? Nope. If they're showing up in a way that's contrary to the nature and message of Jesus, then, oh, we got to like look at their beliefs. Why are they acting this way? Where do they get this idea? Is it appropriate to keep that? Okay, let's look at where it came from, right? And yeah, it's not as scary and complicated as it sounds. Um, You just have to start somewhere. And once you get a bearing Right? And once it starts to kind of make sense in one notion, you start having more confidence in your ability to move into the next one. And then when you've got a little bit of a, an established framework, then you can add and it's, you know, you just got to start somewhere. And like, hey, you got to start this at some point, right? Otherwise, what are you going to do with these beliefs? How are you going to keep participating with the crazies who claim that they know what God is doing in the world and they're representing him and actually the stuff they're doing is hurting a lot of people? Like, hey, that's not okay. And you know that. It's time to do better. All right, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode. I apologize for the windedness. I was catching that that was definitely happening at the end there, but I was I was in it, man. I just couldn't stop. Um, so thanks for being patient with my breathiness. Um, thanks for being here. Um, also, I just want to throw in as well, I didn't know that I was going to do this, but I am loving being a coach again. Uh, the clients that I'm working with, I literally, like... I end my coaching sessions and I feel so much better afterward than I did before. This is work I want to be doing. It's with people that are working through things I want to be helping them with. It's so cool and rewarding. So if you are looking for a coach to help with this deconstruction process or to help with your, you know, reconciling your, your sexuality with your faith, if you're queer in whatever way and you don't know how to move forward, you know, especially because you're coming from a background of faith, like, hey, I'm your guy. I've got a lot of tools, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience happy to help. So there's a link below for you to apply to work with me as well. Um, and then if you are an ally, want to be an ally to the queer community, or you are queer yourself and you want to be part of a space that's hosting and supporting you as a queer person, reconciling your faith with your sexuality, we have a couple of groups you can be part of. For the allies, it's called allies. And for the queer people, it's called the rainbow room. Links below to check those out. Love for you to jump in on what we're doing. Super cool stuff happening in these spaces. Thank you everyone for being here. I will see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.